Thank you very much, Paul. That was a, an excellent introduction, very kind. It's a real pleasure to be able to speak to you here today. Um, my colleagues and I have spent a, a day and a half um, uh, around uh, the Asheville region uh, learning about uh, what's going on around here. And I see in the audience the faces of many of the people who, who've helped us uh, with that learning. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful you could be here um, and very grateful for the generosity um, of you sharing your time with us and being candid with your insights um, about economic developments here. Trips like this are really exceptionally useful uh, to us at the Richmond Fed. So we sift through reams of national data, reams of local data, uh, and trying to figure out what's happening to the economy. But it really is vitally important for us to talk to uh, real people uh, on the ground doing things, because without that, we just don't have the same insight into why things are happening and what people are thinking about current conditions and what people are thinking about future conditions. And understanding that for us is really vital to understanding the direction our national economy is headed. So I'm going to be talking about the national economy uh, here today. And um, I'll talk about why economic growth has been striking uh, many observers as disappointing. I'll spend some time uh, exploring the reasons for that. Uh, I'll argue that given some of the impediments, some of the challenges we face as a nation in economic growth area, we're doing reasonably well, and certainly by international standards, doing quite well uh, on the economic front, um, despite how disappointing it feels. And I'll, and I'll explore some of the, the understanding of why that might be disappointing. <clears throat> I'll spend some time on labor market conditions. Um, and that's been a particular uh, focus of ours, uh, a focus for many. And finally, I'll wrap up with a few comments about um, prospects for monetary policy. But before I begin, I need to be start with the, the standard disclaimer, as we call it, which is that the views I'll express are my own <laughs> and not necessarily shared by any of my colleagues in the Federal Reserve System. But if you read my op-ed piece yesterday, you understand that very well. Uh, so to get a sense of uh, the most recent information um, on economic activities, it helps to look at longer-run trends. So we're now in the sixth year of an expansion that followed the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009, and most observers have been surprised and disappointed by the slow rate of uh, that expansion. Since the expansion began and the recession ended in June 2009, real GDP, gross domestic product, this is what that stands for, real GDP, which is our broadest measure of economic activity in the country, has grown at an average annual rate of 2.2%. So hold on to that number. That's what we've been doing. In contrast, in the 60 years before the recession, real GDP grew at an average annual rate of 3.5%. So substantial difference, and if you look at doubling rates and the like, you'll, you'll realize why. That lengthy period of rapid growth before the recession, I think, gave rise to a strong sense that normal growth is something uh, at least 3%, and that anything less is sort of a cause for concern. That's the mindset we got used to before that. After the recession ended, that sense is what led a lot of forecasters, uh, myself included, to predict repeatedly uh, that growth was about to shift into a more robust phase and accelerate to about 3.5%. Uh, but that just hasn't happened. We've seen some short-lived surges uh, in growth, only to see growth subside again uh, for a couple of quarters, um, you know, a couple of quarters on. Uh, for example, real GDP growth surged over the second half of last year, but then faltered uh, at the beginning of this year. Now, this has led me uh, to conclude uh, that a sustained increase of growth to over 3% is, is not likely in the near future. Given what we now know after five years of ex this expansion, it strikes me as more likely that growth is going to continue to average somewhere between 2 and 2.5% 2 over the near term. So let me take some time and explain why. And here's how I look at things. It helps to decompose... GDP growth, to think of growth in G real GDP as the sum of two other growth components. One is growth in employment, number of workers, 
and the other is growth in real GDP per worker. When we add those up, you should get real GDP growth. Um, so real GDP per worker is the measure of productivity, something you should be familiar with all of you. When you calculate those two components, you find that both growth rates peaked several decades ago and had slowed considerably even before the Great Recession. Since the recession ended, as I said in, the, in late in middle 2009, both growth rates have been relatively low. So the question is, are either employment or productivity growth likely to accelerate uh, anytime soon? So let's look at employment first. Employment growth from the 1970s through the 1990s averaged close to 2% per year because of high population growth and rising labor force participation on the part of women. Larger and larger fraction of working age women were, were in the labor force either actively looking for work or employed from the 70s through the 90s. Uh, but then that topped out. Uh, that, that trend uh, has uh, sort of run its course. Now, even before the Great Recession, population growth um, and labor force participation had started to decline, and both of those are weighing on employment growth. And now we're in the midst of this aging of the baby boom uh, generation, and that means a larger fraction of the workforce is older and thus in the age brackets where they're less likely to look for work, either retired, I don't like to use that word very much, but um, retired or older and less likely to be participating in the labor force. So for the next few years, uh, the relatively slow rate of employment growth shouldn't be surprising. Uh, turning to productivity, growth in output per worker averaged slightly above 3% at an annual rate in the 1950s. A tremendous burst of growth after World War II. It fell sharply in the 70s. Uh, it rebounded somewhat in the 90s. You're familiar with the tech boom. That was a part of that. But it's fallen substantially, the productivity growth rate since then. The longer-run productivity outlook is the subject of active debate, and many of you may have come across this in the media. Uh, Professor Robert Gordon of Northwestern University has argued that there are several distinct headwinds that are likely to limit the growth of productivity uh, for at least the next several decades. In his view, the tremendous productivity gains of the last two centuries um, have largely reflected the dissemination of just a few extraordinary innovations. And he points to things like electricity, the internal combustion engine, as having spread over a couple of decades each and, and, and led to a lot of significant breakthroughs. And he sees no signs of breakthroughs on the horizon of a similar magnitude. Taking the other side... Uh, Professor Joel Mokir, an economic historian also at the Northwestern University, is more optimistic. He notes that economic no innovations are notoriously hard to predict, otherwise we might have invented them already, for example. Science and technology are moving in heretofore unimagined directions, directions that are very difficult to measure using our standard economic and statistical frameworks. And he, he foresees substantial improvements in our standards of living, even if it takes some time for those improvements to be reflected in our national income accounts. So my view leans more towards the more optimistic end of the spectrum. Um, I do believe the economics profession has only a limited quantitative understanding of the process by which new ideas emerge and diffuse and are adopted. Uh, so it's hard for me to rule out the notion that a good-sized pool of innovations lie ahead for us to uncover and deploy. And in fact, uh, understanding that process is the core of why we do trips like this, because understanding growth is essential for us to, to be able to do monetary policy in a sound way, to know what interest rates are right for the economy. And in our, our conversations yesterday and this morning, um, we learned about a great deal that's going on right around here um, by way of innovation. And I won't, I won't mention any of the exciting things because I know I'll leave out some other exciting things that I'll feel bad for not having mentioned. But um, those of you who participated in these discussions know um, of what I'm, I'm speaking. So I, I came away from this trip, uh, more than many others, very deeply impressed by the, the innovative uh, activity that's going on around our country that I'm convinced is, is going to accumulate over time uh, and, and steadily improve our standards of, of living. I think what might be the more critical question uh, uh, 
to the debate about productivity growth trends is whether we as a society, as a country, are well positioned uh, to do so, to adopt and implement uh, those new innovations, or whether some developments in the policy sphere are perhaps dampening the incentive and the ability uh, to implement innovations. And that's a very deep subject. Don't want to do more than scratch the surface by putting that thought out there right now. But I think that might be the more critical question for us going forward. For purposes of projecting economic uh, conditions over the next several years, I think, though, the safest bet is that near-term productivity growth, the way we measure it in the standard way, um, is going to closely resemble the recent past. So growing at around 1% per year. So putting that together with employment growth, I think it's it's unlikely that either employment or measured productivity growth are going to accelerate GDP growth in the near future. Um, and that leaves me thinking uh, that uh, GDP growth is likely to, to remain at around 2.2%, two and a quarter percent or so, as I said. Now, as a complement to this sort of supply side uh, perspective I've been giving you, let's take a look at the spending side of the ledger. Consumer spending accounts for about 70% of gross domestic product. Our economy is 70% serving consumer needs directly. Um, and so that's a good place to start. At the end of the recession, consumer spending uh, since then has grown at an annual average rate of 2.2%, that magic number again, the same as real GDP. And year to date, uh, consumer spending uh, in real terms, inflation adjusted, has also grown at a 2.2% annual rate. This is well aligned with trends in real disposable income. And as a result, um, I think there's good reasons to doubt a surge in consumer spending before there's some surge in real disposable uh, income. U.S. households appear, appear to remain quite mindful of what they've been through, the unexpectedly dramatic uh, losses in income and wealth that they experienced during the Great Recession. And I think that's why they've been so cautious about expanding spending since then. And I think, for me, that's a reason why I expect this caution to continue. And I expect it'll be a while before it dissipates. One other spending category to touch on, some observers continue to forecast rapid growth in residential construction expenditures. Since the end of the recession, residential investment has risen at a solid 5.6% annual rate. But, th but that still leaves some measures of housing activity uh, well below the levels that were seen before the housing boom. And anyone who's a participant in the housing market understands the gap between conditions then and conditions now. So far this year, the annual rate of new single-family housing starts has been barely half of the 1.3 million units that, that were built annually on average from 1995 through 2007. And with, with home construction running so far below our traditional benchmark, benchmarks, it would seem nor, uh, normal for there to be some enormous pent-up demand uh, to lead to a surge in new construction. And I think that's why so many forecasters are, are calling for um, a, a, a rapid surge, but that hasn't happened yet. And if you think about it, you can think of good reasons why not. Since the recession, um, I think we all have a greater appreciation of the risks for a typical American household associated with the boom-bust cycle in uh, housing. Uh, certainly more pronounced in this recession. It was at the core of the recession. Uh, but that sensitivity to the risks associated with housing busts, I think, is uh, bound to curb households' enthusiasm for making highly leveraged investments in housing, uh, particularly single-family homes. Moreover, housing-related credit is not as widely available or as available as, on as generous terms uh, as during the boom. I'm seeing some shaking heads here. Um, more factors, uh, other, uh, other factors like that, uh, 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 generally align up with this. So, um, and, and there's households' general sort of cautiousness uh, after the recession uh, that, to me, seem likely to reinforce the shift that's been going on towards multifamily rental uh, tenure rather than home ownership that we've been seeing. So while overall residential investment, I think, should continue to grow at a solid pace, I don't think we should expect the single-family housing market to return uh, to pre-recession norms anytime soon. So I won't subject you to an encyclopedic tour of the rest of uh, the categories of aggregate spending, 
Suffice it to say, I, I don't see signs of accelerating activity there either. So as I said, my outlook for real GDP forecast continues to be two to two and a quarter percent, or two and a half percent. Now that represents a step down from what was typical in the last half of the 20th century, as I said. So it might provide a less effervescent experience for businesses and households. Um, but nonetheless, as I said, given the challenges we faced, we should take some satisfaction uh, in the good economic progress it makes, uh, it represents. If growth continues, for example, through the end of the year, uh, as virtually all forecasters are uh, forecasting, uh, and through the end of next year as well, this will become the fourth longest expansion uh, in, since World War II. Uh, so some measure of comfort I think we can take uh, at our economic circumstances. So over the last five years, growth in overall economic activity at about the pace that I'm projecting has resulted in a substantial improvement in labor market conditions. I'm going to talk about the labor market now. Since the end of the recession, we've added uh, 8.5 million net new jobs, according to the survey we national government does of, uh, federal government does of employers. That pace of job growth was rapid enough to bring the unemployment rate from 10% in October of 2009 down to 5.9% in September of this year. Some economists have argued that the decline in the unemployment rate overstates the improvement in labor market conditions. They point out that a large number of workers who say they want to work but do not satisfy the official definition of unemployment because they're not actively looking for work. Uh, these are, are called, the, the term for it is marginally attached workers. Uh, and many of them have given up searching for work because they're discouraged about job prospects. And the, these economists argue, and this is legitimate, that that represents a, a, an additional degree of labor underutilization, uh, if you will, beyond that captured by the standard unemployment rate. In addition to that, there are many people working part-time, the phrase is part-time for economic reasons, meaning they're working part-time but would work full-time if full-time work was uh, available. And um, as a result, they also represent another pocket of uh, underutilization of labor. So this has led some economists to focus on a broader measure that includes both of these groups. It's called uh, U6, um, and it includes, in addition to the unemployed, those who are marginally attached to the labor force and those who are working part-time for economic reasons. And this measure is, of course, higher than the standard unemployment rate because uh, it includes extra uh, folks, and it has remained elevated um, uh, since the recession, although it's come down as well with the unemployment uh, rate. So this measures the, the, the additional extent of labor market underutilization what's, that's not captured in the standard unemployment rate. So this uh, labor market dynamics has been a very fertile area of economic research in the last few years. I think inspired by you know, the, the dramatic dynamics, the huge increase in the unemployment rate. It, uh, a lot of labor economists who have been researching this for decades have um, have, have, have done even more work and people have been attracted to the field. So it's been, it's been a great time for this research, particularly Federal Reserve economists and uh, some economists at the Richmond Fed. And, um, in, and I'd like to report on some of that research uh, for you. So in recent years, economists have been able uh, to learn a lot from some very large data sets on the transitions of individual workers from employment to unemployment and from in the labor force and out of the labor force. Uh, so in, in business, this would be called big data analytics, but um, in economics, we just call it data. Um, so these insights have, have been a co good complement to earlier work that was based on data that just every month estimated the stock of workers that were unemployed, and then next month, measures the stock of workers that are unemployed. And we know there's a tremendous amount. Now we know there's a tremendous amount of churn, a lot of, a lot of movement in and out of unemployment. So every month there's several million new hires and several million people separate from their employer. And the focus of attention at the employment report is the net gain, which is about 200, between 200 and 300,000. Uh, on four million going one way or the other. Uh, so there's a lot of movement in the labor force, and we've, we've got the data sets now to, to make progress on that. 
So I want to highlight work by Richmond Fed economists Andreas Hornstein and Mariana Kudliak uh, and a, a colleague of theirs at the McGill University, uh, Professor Fabian Long. They recently co-authored a paper along with Tim Sablick, um, someone else at the Richmond Fed, and they've developed a new and really an intuitively appealing approach uh, to estimating the extent of labor market underutilization. And this is a, an index that's better than the U6, I'd argue. Their method is based on the observation that people who are impl not employed differ in the likelihood of them making a transition in any given month uh, to employment. So they're not employed this month. What's the likelihood that next month they'll be employed? And that varies depending on whether you're unemployed, out of the labor force, and so on. So, uh, for example, based on data from 94 to 2013, a retiree had a 1.4% probability of becoming employed the next month, even though they told surveyors that we're retired, never going to work again ostensibly. Lo and behold, they come out of retirement. 1.4%, though, is a pretty small transition probability. In contrast, somebody who's been unemployed for less than half a year and the term for this category of workers is short-term unemployed, less than 26 weeks, has a 28% chance of become un becoming unemployed. So remember, they're looking for work actively to be counted as unemployed. So that makes sense, 28%. Uh, and that's the highest of all the groups out, out of the, that aren't working. That's the highest transition probability. Um, so the, uh, there's a group of workers that want a job but don't meet the criteria for being unemployed. Uh, the so-called marginally attached workers, um, the probability of transition for that group is 13%, so much higher than being uh, retired, but not as higher as, as being short-term unemployed. So their measure of labor market underutilization takes these differences into account. They construct what they call the non-employment index. Unemployment was taken, uh, so they called it non-employment. Um, and what they do is take each category of workers and um, they weight them by the propensity to become employed. So the weight for, and, and the re, it's the relative propensity to become employed. So a short-term unemployed gets a weight of one. Um, somebody who's, uh, the, one of these marginally attached workers, the weight's about a half because their transition probability is about a half. Retired people count, but their, prob their weight is very low because their transition probability is very mm -hmm. low. And they, took, they take an improved approach to counting the underutilization associated with part-time workers. The U6 counts a part-time worker as one, but that's not fair because they're already working part-time. So uh, taking into account that they're already working some hours, their, their degree of underutilization is less, and so they take that into account. So they have this non-employment index, and you can look it up on our website. It closely tracks movements in the unemployment rate. So it moves up and down with the unemployment rate. It's above the unemployment rate, moves up and down with it. In the latest episode, both of them rose sharply and have declined since. But, and both of them remain above the level seen um, before the last recession. So before the last recession, the un standard unemployment rate got down to 4.7. We're at 5.9 now. Uh, and similarly for the non-employment index, we're above where we were before the recession. But an important finding of theirs is that the relationship between the non-employment index, this measure of underutilization, and the unemployment rate seems to have remained stable over time. In particular, the non-employment index is about where it should be based on past episodes when the standard unemployment rate was where it is now, 5.9%. So this research um, supports the conclusion that the standard unemployment rate by itself is a reasonably reliable indicator of the degree of labor market utilization. So yes, there is more underutilization than is captured by the standard unemployment rate, but there always is, and there seems to be no more now than is typical when the unemployment rate is where it is now. So uh, that to me was informative about this question of whether the unemployment rate which has fallen, I think, more rapidly than a lot of forecasters expected, uh, is a fair representation of the degree of improvement in labor markets. So I want to conclude with some thoughts on inflation and monetary policy. So my remarks about inflation could be relatively short because inflation's been fairly well-behaved of late. Over the last 20 years, the Fed's preferred 
uh, indicator of the overall price level in the economy, uh, a statistical statistic called the Price Index for Personal Consumption Expenditures. Um, That's risen at an average annual rate of 1.9%. And for reference, the Federal Reserve's stated goal is 2%. So we're we're doing pretty well over the last 20 years, a period in which we basically stabilized inflation. Now, over shorter intervals, there have been substantial swings, gotten up above 4% at times, down to negative 1% on a 12-month basis um, at times. But it swings back to average about 2%. Last year, for example, inflation was only 1.2%, and that was notably below our target, and it raised the possibility in some minds of persistent, excessive disinflation, declining inflation, um, and, uh, and, and had some observers concerned on that basis. This year, however, prices have risen at 1.6% at an annual rate for the first eight months of the year, suggesting, as many people predicted at the beginning of the year, the inflation is moving back to a 2% trend. And I expect that to happen. I expect inflation to gradually converge over the next year or two to the Fed's 2% target. Now, thankfully, uh, and this is part of my confidence in this, there there aren't any signs that businesses or consumers' expectations for inflation have drifted away substantially from 2%. And that's important because the times in which inflation has gotten out of control like the late 60s and early 70s have been times when people lost confidence that inflation was anchored anywhere fairly low, when what they expected for inflation kept going up and up as actual inflation rose. Uh, Rather than our experience has been, even when inflation rises, people still expect it to come down to 2%. Um, So that's uh, important. Of course, monetary policy must be conducted in a way to ensure that we never see such a drift in expectations materialize. Because if if that happens, it'll sort of be too late, and it'll be painful to correct course and bring those expectations uh, back down. And we saw that um, big time in the 1970s. Speaking of monetary policy, um, at the end of 2008, as you all know, the Fed lowered its target for the federal funds rate. This is our policy rate, the interbank lending rate that we've targeted for years. Uh, brought that target down to near zero. It's zero to 25 basis points is the target range. Since then, the Fed has purchased large quantities of longer-term treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities that were underwritten by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the, the government-sponsored housing uh, finance uh, giants uh, that are now under government conservatorship. Uh, they, were, they failed in late 2008. As a result of this, these large purchases, the Fed's balance sheet has risen from about $900 billion in 2007 to $4.4 trillion today. Barring unforeseen circumstances, the Federal Open Market Committee is widely expected to announce at the end of um, its next meeting on October 29th the end of the asset purchase program. At the last meeting of the FOMC, uh, the FOMC released a statement summarizing its current thinking on the ways in which it would normalize the stance of policy and our security holdings in the years ahead. Uh, these, the discussions that led to these, this statement uh, were part of prudent planning. and We didn't do this because um, we thought that normalization was going to commence the next meeting or two or some imminent time. It's just as a matter of prudent planning to get the plans out there so that when we do want to commence normalization, uh, the public's had a chance to digest uh, what, the way in which we're going to go about it. The primary instrument for moving the federal funds rate into the committee's target range when we raise the range uh, is going to be the interest rate that the Federal Reserve pays on excess reserves held by the banking system. So banks hold reserve account balances with us, um, and we pay interest on that. We pay an interest rate of two, uh, 25 basis points now, and the Fed funds rate trades around 9 or 10 basis points. And there's a natural sort of arbitrage relationship that ties those interest rates all together because banks can borrow and put the money with us at 25 basis points. So rates can't go far below that rate we pay on excess reserves. And they're not going to go much above it because um, who's going to, you know, who's going to, the competition will drive rates down to around where that, that rate is. Um, so uh, it, it, it exerts a magnetic force um, on other interest, short-term interest rates. So at some point uh, after the initial increase in the Fed funds target range, 
committee participants, the FOMC uh, committee participants, believe that what we'll do is stop reinvesting uh, the principal repayments that we're getting on our portfolio. So we're going to keep, when we stop making asset purchases, we're going to keep the portfolio at the same size, and we're going to roll over, reinvest maturing proceeds of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Sometime after the first rate increase, we'll stop rolling over uh, those maturing proceeds. Uh, and that'll result in a, a slow, gradual, and pretty predictable decline in the size of the portfolio. We'll take decades to get it down, but it, it'll, it'll, it'll occur sooner or later. Now, I supported the approach uh, to conducting interest rate policy, using the interest rate on excess reserves. Uh, I think that's a sound framework. I also supported the committee's statement that it made that the Fed will, in due course, hold no more securities than necessary to implement monetary policy efficiently and effectively, and that it will hold primarily Treasury securities, thereby minimizing the effect of Federal Reserve holdings on the allocation of credit across sectors of the economy. I could not support, however, the committee's planned approach to moving the, the Fed's balance sheet towards that normal state by just not reinvesting proceeds uh, over time. In particular, uh, the statement says that the committee currently does not anticipate selling agency-backed mortgage-backed securities. I believe this approach, not doing any asset sales, unnecessarily prolongs our interference uh, in the allocation of credit. The Fed's MBS holdings may put downward pressure on mortgage interest rates. By us buying those securities, it may push down mortgage interest rates. Compared to holding us holding an identical amount of treasuries instead. So the, the thought experiment is, do we hold MBS or do instead we buy even more treasuries? So we buy treasuries instead of those MBS. Um, if, it, if it puts downward pressure on mortgage rates for, hold, for us to hold MBS rather than treasuries, then it likely means higher rates for others, for other borrowers, for us to hold MBS rather than treasuries. Because if we hold treasuries, it's going to have an even effect on all interest rates. Whereas for us to concentrate our holdings in, in mortgage-backed securities pushes down those rates, but pushes down other rates by less. And thus, the choice of treasuries versus MBS has the effect of raising interest rates on others, on other borrowers, small businesses, consumers that want to borrow for auto loans or on credit cards and the like. That, uh, to me, is a problem. So this would favor home mortgage borrowers, but it tilts the playing field against borrowers in other economic sectors. And I think that, that selling assets, particularly mortgage-backed securities, should be an active component of the normalization process in order to reduce the Fed's role in credit allocation as rapidly as possible. And this is what my op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday was about. The desire to avoid this type of credit allocation is a long-standing principle in the conduct of U.S. monetary policy. And in fact, it was reaffirmed in a joint statement of the Federal Reserve and the Treasury in March 23, 2009, which said, and I'll quote here, actions taken by the Federal Reserve should, not, should also aim to improve financial or credit market conditions broadly, not to allocate credit to narrowly defined sectors or, or classes of borrowers. And I fully agree with that statement. Tilting the flow of credit uh, to favored borrowers at the expense of others is inappropriate and it's unnecessary to conducting monetary policy. Now, I might be something of a stickler for principle on this issue, but I, it's because the e extraordinary independence of a modern central bank like the Federal Reserve, we don't have to go to Congress to change interest rates. Um, it's a unique privilege. It's proved exceptionally valuable for conducting monetary policy, for achieving monetary stability, because we're able to resist the electoral pressures that would, that would point us towards uh, juicing the economy just before an election uh, at the expense of inflation later on. Central bank independence is going to be precarious if we use it uh, more broadly than we need to just for the sake of monetary policy. Um, and so we need, we need to, to establish some clear boundaries um, around the use of our independence um, and particularly with regard to credit market interventions. So I've, I've said my piece about that. 
um, explained the position that I articulated in, in my dissent on this aspect of our, our, um, our, our, our statement on normalization and uh, the, the thing that appeared in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. I want to uh, close by just thanking you once again. Uh, this is uh, a remarkable and very impressive uh, community. And I've had a delightful time here. I've learned a tremendous amount from you all. And I wish you the absolute best. And I hope I hear from you again soon. Read about you in the newspapers. Come back to visit sometime and hear about all the dazzling things that you're doing once again. Thank you very much. Do have time for some questions? I'd like. Yes, ma'am. What have you found most surprising during your visit? Um, so, it's it's broader and more diverse here. The, the so what's what's surprising about my visit? Sort of the breadth and diversity of of uh, economic energy here has been surprising. I mean, you read about Asheville from afar. You read about breweries, um, you read about great restaurants, you read about the vitality of the art scene. Uh, if you read a little more deeply, you know, you'll read about advanced manufacturing. But, um, boy, the, you know, the uh, Entrepreneurs' Roundtable yesterday was impressive. It's going on at GE Aviation. Um, just, a, you know, kind of a – and then in, in the arts world, what we were he hearing about yesterday, plum print, you know. Here I am doing it. What I, I was afraid I would do is singling out some of the cool things I learned. Um, but uh, just the diversity of innovative activities, uh, kayak maker today, an RV maker, you know. Um, that, that, that was impressive. It's a broader and deeper, uh, more diverse economy than I, than I expected. I, I expected tourism, built more beer. <laughs> I do, yeah. The question is, you know, will that entrepreneurial spirit fill the void left by the departure of some major manufacturers? This is the way of the world. Things grow, you know, enterprises grow, and then they falter or move somewhere else, and something grows up behind it. Um, and, um, I, I mean, I, I've seen that happening in a lot of places. So our, our district, which goes from Maryland down to the Carolinas, includes most of West Virginia, the part from like Southside Virginia South, uh, and mostly in the Carolinas, has been a fascinating thing to watch for me over the last 10 years. One of the first speeches I gave was in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I'm racking my brain, I'm reading about the region, thinking, what do I talk about? And, you know, they were wrestling with, at that point, you know, kind of the depths of the departure of the, you know, the furniture and textile industry, apparel industries. And I started. That started me really seriously um, reading up on the economic research on skills, skill, the, tech, the, the fact that technological change that we'd seen in the last 20 or 30 years was heavily biased towards making people with certain skills more productive and hadn't done much for low-skilled workers and began preaching there that accumulating skills in human capital was really the key to moving ahead. And, uh, you know, I, I've just seen that writ large in so many of the conversations I've had here. Um, you folks get it. Um, the high schools here, I mean, I heard this morning how, uh, how, you know, how unique and how um, special they are at, at producing the kind of skills that we need. And uh, AB Tech is doing a great job pushing ahead. I th I've been a big advocate of community colleges to um, provide our, our young people with the kind of training. I think we it's not clear we don't send too many kids off on the college track. I mean, so many kids don't finish college within six years, and um, of and and when they don't, they don't get nearly the bump in lifetime earnings that you get if you complete college. So it seems pretty clear that we're sending kids to college that aren't a good match for that, and might be, a, you know, the inference is they might be a good match for something else. So um, putting them. So I've taken a little detour into workforce development here, but. Um, yeah, that entrepreneurial spirit of you know striking out on your own, working with your hands, building something, creating something. You know, if it's in the IT space, maybe just work with your fingers on keyboards. But um, 
I think that's important. I have worries today that that um, sort of on a range of range of seemingly small regulatory developments over the last twenty or thirty years. We were talking about HIPAA at the table today and some other things that are all well-meaning in and of themselves, and what each one taken by itself might be good, might be in the aggregate costing us something in productivity growth. And productivity growth is ultimately what drives standards of living up. And So I, I worry about that. I'm not sure, I, I, you know, I, I haven't seen any research to quantify that, but I worry that there's, there's things getting in the way of that entrepreneurial spirit really um, be fully realized. Uh, in the complex formula that you had, about predicting unemployment. Ah, uh, the non-employment index. <laughs> right. Uh, did Fed ever consider people who are underemployed, people who are making like, as for example, $100,000 are not making that much, but making only $60,000? Mm. That's much harder to get a, a handle on. So the, the economic statistics we have tend to treat people who have a full-time job and we're measuring, all right, who wants a full-time job but can't get one or doesn't, hasn't managed to find one. But people who have a full-time job who would like to have a more productive full-time job, one that's, you know, where the productivity is higher, that's much more difficult to measure. I think that's always with us. I think, you know, kind of the way of the world, again, you know, is, is that uh, people aspire and people are capable of more and there's a certain amount of untapped potential there. But... We haven't come close to measuring that, I don't think, uh, economically. Uh, I was curious about the statistic uh, when you're measuring uh, employment growth, and you talked about 4 million jobs added or 3.8 million uh, removed. Is that an indicator? I'm just curious if that is historically high, if that's an indicator of an efficient market, or if that has something perhaps to do with disruption with new industries emerging, others dying? How do you think Um, about that? So it's... You know, in the labor market, you, when you look at these, they're called flows data, and we've this data set comes. Um, there were some informal measurements of this from some indirect sources, but in the early '90s, they, the Bureau of Labor Statistics started collecting and releasing these data. You may see it referred to as JOLT, uh, Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey, and uh, it's a fascinating report. It comes out later than the standard employment report each month, um, but. Um, it, it shows you uh, quits, how many people have quit their job this, this month, how many people, then there's involuntary separations. We know what that's a euphemism for. And then there's, there's um, new hires, right? So people who've newly become attached. They also measure vacancies. So how many posted jobs are there that are vacant? Um, and those, those measurements um, are a different window you know, on how labor markets function. It's in terms of the flows of people out of some job matches and to other job matches. And so they think of it in terms of matching. Um, and, um, yeah, you can get a, a barometer of the health of the labor market. So the, um, in the recession, those fall. You know, we have fewer hires. But we also have, for a while, there's more separations. But then separations fall as well. So you get, coming out of the recession, you get less movement. And we haven't gotten back to quite the same level of movement in the labor market um, as we had. I, I think you're right to associate that movement with, um, you know, kind of the birth-death process of, of um, innovation. Uh, because in some sense, it's a measure. It, every one of those movements from impl- matched with one employer to matched with another employer – they did it voluntarily, so it must, you know, it must represent, in some sense, an improvement for somebody on one side of the match or the other. Um, and so it's a process of just improving the match of people with roles. Um, and uh, the fact that there's less of it going on is something that's getting a lot of attention uh, in uh, the research world. And it, it may be related to this. I, I talked about this sort of dampening effect on growth and whether... You know, it, it may be closely related to this lower productivity growth because there's also data on a lower rate of business startups now, and those all might be tied together somehow. As I control the Fred database and look at GDP numbers, uh-huh. I wonder about the uh, the validity of the numbers as we move from a manufacturing, more of a manufacturing economy, which seems easier to measure 
toward a service and intellectual-based economy, which seems to be very difficult to measure. That's a, g- a great concern, um, and I know um, people in Washington who work on those statistics and economists who use them have been very concerned about for, that for years. Um, big changes made last year. We introduced a new category of spending um, on uh, – uh, it's called intellectual um, property. Uh, and so it, we used to – they uh, several years ago, they started tracking software as a capital item. So if you – if you buy software, if you have somebody create software for you, somebody writes new software, it's like building a new building in that it's investment, it forms capital, and then the capital depreciates over time. So tracking it that way. We hadn't been tracking software that way until a few years ago. They expanded that to cover other forms of intellectual property, so recordings, movies. You might not think of them as valuable capital, but... Uh, you know, opinions may vary, but they have a methodology of sort of gauging the market value of it and treating the creation of a creative product as, a, as an investment. I think it's a good step in that direction, but I think there's a lot more uh, they could do probably. Thank you. Um, obviously, Wall Street pays and the stock markets pay a lot of attention to the Fed. Um, Contrarians argue that with the slowing down and ultimate um, uh, ceasing of liquidity into the markets uh, plus uh, eventual tightening of policy will lead to significant correction uh, in the stock market, uh, the sort of the bubble effect. So what are your thoughts on that, and how much does the Fed pay attention to the levels of the stock market? It's a good question. It's one I usually dodge. <laughs> so you, you, I'll, I'll let you watch me do that again. <laughs> now, you know, in all seriousness, you know, we take on board everything that's going on in financial markets because it all provides useful information because there's so much information out there that's diffuse and how investors are feeling and um, assessments of uh, prospects for you know, particular firms or particular sectors. And uh, that's all revealed. It's all hard to directly to measure. So it's all revealed through things that happen in financial markets, like equity valuations, like interest rates, like uh, premia on longer-term lending, and um, you know where the where the 10-year Treasury yield is, for example, and foreign exchange rates and the like. So we pay attention to a lot of that, and we do take that on board. As for what happens when we begin raising rates, I think a number of scenarios are possible, and I think. Sound investors should take into account that, that uh, a number of uh, scenarios are possible. Um, there have been times in which we've initiated rate changes in which there's a fair amount of financial market volatility that accompanied the process. 1994 is an excellent recent example. Um, and there have been times in which uh, there was probably less volatility than there maybe should have been, but certainly less volatility than the 94 instance. 2004 is an excellent example. And I think, you know, because it was the same chairman both times, Greenspan, I think in 2004 the, the FOMC was very concerned not to add additional volatility themselves to the process of short-term interest rates, making an adjustment from where they were, which was 1% in 2003, to, you know, they got up to five, over 5%. Um, and I, I think that was wise. You don't, we don't want to add extra noise. We don't want to look like we're sort of, uh, you know, have a trembling hand on the, on the handle. Um, but, um, you know, by telegraphing our moves in 2004, we may have inadvertently boxed ourselves in uh, to a less flexible policy path than we should have. Um, you know, we, we started raising rates at 25 basis points at every meeting, and we did that for two years, 16 meetings. Uh, and we didn't change the meeting schedule and have extra meetings or fewer meetings, right? So we just set 25 was a reasonable rate, uh, seemed like a good pace. Now, if you think about it, over two years, what are the odds, you, you know, you're going to pick exactly that amount. Maybe it should have been 27 basis points a meeting or 28. I mean, it would have been a little crazy, but, you know, it, it, it may have boxed us into a lockstep that in the end got us less tightening, less rapidly than we thought was war- than it turned out to be warranted. And I, I, I say less tightening that may have been warranted in hindsight, not on the basis of the housing market, but on the basis of inflation, which from 2004 through 2007 was very close to 3%. 
Uh, it was one of those large divergences away from 2%. And I think in hindsight, it would have been better for us to tighten um, a, a little more rapidly at times in that sequence beginning in 2004. Um, but again, um, that was an instance where the yield curve ended up pretty flat. In 1994, the long end of the yield curve rose pretty rapidly. So I think there's a, a, a range of uh, scenarios for how markets react that, that wise investors would be uh, well advised to take into account. Anyone else? How do international affairs enter into it? I mean, is there a set? What parts, if we if we spend billions and billions of dollars on military exercises or some other international incident, how how do you factor that in the way you look at things? And are there set parts of that 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 re- have a certain response? And have you set precedents based on uh, earlier international affairs? It's really interesting. So the the part of international affairs you mentioned, you called that was our expenditures, uh, military expenditures. So the swing in military expenditures has been significant over the last several years, and it has it's had a dramatic effect in the northern part of my Federal Reserve District, uh, the D.C. area. So m- my district is something like twenty six percent of federal spending, same and same of federal uh, defense spending. Um, so the area around D.C., Northern Virginia, Maryland, have been hit pretty hard, um, and the area around um, Newport News, Portsmouth, Hampton Roads area has been hit pretty hard as well. Um, so those kind of swings can make a difference for some regions that's pretty significant. Um, for the national economy as a whole, that federal spending can shave a couple of points or add a couple um, tenths uh, of a percentage point to growth. Um, and so that's something we have to take on board and has reading the numbers and understanding what's going on. Um, you know, more broadly, I think the... The broader risks, to, so those are th- those are pretty manageable. Those we kind of that's in the realm, that's in the size realm of sort of day to day burbles in economic activity. Um, the you know the broader issue about international affairs has to do with things that could disrupt the oil market in a d- way that disrupts economic activity, or uh, in some other way uh, induces a sharp contraction in economic activity abroad that that echoes back through uh, the export channel on uh, economic activity here. So far, we've avoided that. So far, it looks as if we're going to, likely to avoid that, but that's something we always keep an eye on. And then one more question here, and then I'm going to have to let you go. You're the uh, primary mover and shaker of one of the major U.S. regions. Uh, where is our comparative advantage relative to the other regions of the U.S.? Great question. Um, so uh, I was going to say look out the window, but um, so you have a, there's a constellation things I've heard about, um, I've learned about. Workforce, I'd place number one. Um, so the amenities of living in this region in terms of recreation, I'd, I'd place um, up there as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, a, you know, sort of a, a regulatory environment uh, uh, that's um, conducive to entrepreneurship I think is, is something I'd, I'd, I'd rate you guys is pretty strong on as well. I think uh, a pretty cohesive community-oriented leadership uh, seems seems pretty noticeable here. Um, and just very community-minded entrepreneurs and business and civic leaders. So, And then... Um, uh, oh, and, and in the amenities pool, I put the arts scene, which is really just spectacular here. Um, so... Um, that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. Uh, they're all kind of unique, but they're all, they're all pretty good and pretty strong. Thank you again. That's a great note to end on. What a marvelous place. Thank you so much for your hospitality.